Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have an awesome guest. Athena Doshi is the founder and CEO of Celeste. In this episode, we talk about why she started Celeste, what is pharmacometabolomics, how they're helping with administrative burden and improving adherence, and who is responsible for medication adherence. This is a great episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Hey, hey, Athena, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, thank you for um, being a guest. I'm really excited about uh, this conversation. But before we get started, do you, mind, do you mind giving us a little background about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am the founder and CEO of a company called Celeste. We are essentially a one-stop shop for medication management, and we're rooted in precision medicine. Um, the cornerstone of kind of like what we're doing is addressing the gender data gap in healthcare to basically build a more equitable equitable system um, for all women that they can really rely on. Um, and then ultimately thinking about creating a new standard of care and therapeutics. Um, that's that's awesome. I think that's a great mission to have. Um, so uh, when you so when you say uh, medication management and precision medicine, what does that what does that actually mean? Yeah, great question. So I think what we're what we want to do is really reframe the word precision medicine to begin with. I think when people think about precision medicine, they think about pharmacogenomics. So using your genetic insights primarily to be able to um, induce like medication recommendations, get a better sense of how you'll react to medication recommendations. We're taking it a little bit further than that by thinking about pharmacometabolomics. So we're looking at how an individual metabolizes that specific medication. Um, to predict frequency of side effects, predict medication adherence, and ultimately create this comprehensive medication regimen that a patient can actually adhere to and actually follow. Um, so that's kind of like what we're thinking about on like the precision medicine side of things, um, embedding ourselves as a tool um, within the existing clinical and care delivery workflow so that it's something that all patients can have like universally um, within a specific health system. Yeah, I mean, the nerd in me is loves these kind of conversations because me being a pharmacist background. Um, so meta, uh, pharmacometabolomics, I actually had never heard of this before we had spoken. Um, and I'm kind of sad I didn't because it's a really it's just, it's really interesting. Uh, and you kind of mentioned and I think that it's really important. Why do you think is this is I mean, obviously, it's a newer thing that's coming along. But like you kind of mentioned what it does. You know, we're looking at how the patient is metabolizing, because if people don't know it, everybody metabolizes things differently based on the enzymes you have, whatever, and you can have adverse side effects, not adverse side effects, and that leads to adherence, right? Um, how is that, I mean, you kind of mentioned like, how is that different than like like the precision medicine side of it? So it actually is precision medicine. Um, a lot, there's been a lot of research done also in the ability for pharmacometabolomics to induce pharmacogenomics, um, or Sorry, pharmacogenetics yeah. in general. So I think it's a really cool concept and like a step further from what current FDA standards are for medication safety and efficacy. So if you're a pharmacist, you definitely know this, so I don't have to tell you, but with the with the FDA, you look at like pharmacokinetic, dynamic, and genetic insights. So basically 
how safe is that medication for this person? It doesn't really take into account the little side effects that may not be fatal in nature, but will cause medication non-adherence. The reason why we look at how a patient metabolizes the medication is because it's those mood fluctuations, weight fluctuations, um, those frankly just suboptimal experiences on the medication that makes you quote unquote quit. And what we wanna do is help patients achieve their outcomes by taking a really comprehensive and holistic approach of how they metabolize medications. And so while this is a, a newer concept in precision medicine, it's pretty well established and more in the clinical research sector. And so we're bridging the gap between clinical research and care delivery, making it really easy for providers to adopt. Yeah, no, that's, I meant to say pharmacogenomics. I, I misspoke there, but no, I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, when, when, so your, your founding team, you want to talk, you want, you, you want to talk about your founding team a little bit and then kind of like where, you know, you have an interesting founding team that's just wanted to bring light to that. Yeah, absolutely. I can't speak highly enough of my team. They're some of my favorite people in the world. I couldn't imagine building this company with anybody else. Um, one part, one member of our founding team, her name is Dr. Gina Coco. She's also a pharmacist, uh, graduated from UCSF. There you go. Um, one of my best friends, um, we went to college together and then we ended up getting really close when we were both in San Francisco. So I don't know how it happened, but I managed to convince her to join this. Um, so grateful that she's on board. Um, and then we also have our chief scientific officer, who's also fantastic. Um, she actually has a background in pharmacometabolomics and she's a full stack engineer. Um, I didn't even think that existed. Um, I'm so glad both her and Gina went to grad school because your girl did not. Um, so, um, uh, so they're both fantastic. Um, and then we also have our ops associate, uh, Joanna Flores, who's been, who actually joined me, um, initially in like the early days, just interested in learning more about the space. And she's become such a critical member of the team. Um, and we're just so lucky to have her. And the, the last member of our team is Ellard Lee. Um, he and I actually worked on the same team at Omada Health. Um, we were both on the same product team. He was our engineering lead, and now he's joining us on this mission at Celeste. So I'm obviously, I love my team a lot. Um, and yeah, just excited for us to continue building together. Yeah, no, and I think that's uh, the reason why I wanted to, for you to bring up your team, because I think it's important to highlight that, you know, you're, this wasn't just an idea brought up from something like there's actual like people, you, you have actual like, not saying you have people that are in part of this, right? They've been, they've, they've embedded themselves into the study of what you guys are doing. And it's, you know, it's not some token, like person with an MD, unfortunately that happens in some startups. Like you, like your founding team is legit. I mean, for lack of a better word, I think that's, I, I think you guys are, that's why I was really excited to have you on the, on the podcast. Cause it's good to talk to people, not only that you're serious about the, the actual topic that you're trying to, you know, the actual problem you're trying to solve, but you also have a team that is, brings the power behind that. Uh, passion as well and those two if you have both of those i mean it's really hard to um it's it's really hard to fight against uh, people like that agreed and i think like a team really makes the company no one person can do it alone and that's definitely a culture that i think the five of us have embedded um and really like stuck to just having each other's backs is it's it's difficult out here in like startup land um so it's always nice to have people to like lean on um that are that are in the trenches with you yeah and then i think it's also another thing you know i think I think your founding team really exemplifies that a lot is none of you guys are doing the same things, right? All of you guys are very complementary to each other. 
Uh, so that way, not saying that you guys are staying in your lanes. I mean, obviously you guys, it's startup. Everyone is doing whatever that is necessary, but you know, you don't have like two people that are, you know, good at one thing. Like you have, everyone has something that they're really powerful at and all you guys can kind of work together and build a great product. Agreed. And I will say, um, they might kill me for saying this. Actually, I don't think they will. They are so funny. Like <laughs> they are just such a fun group of people. It's like, so it's just fun to wake up every morning and do it. And I think that that like goes back to just like motivation when, you know, you're in the trenches and you're like building a company from zero to one, it takes a lot of effort. So again, just very, very proud to be a part of that team. Yeah. And so if you don't, if, if you don't mind sharing, you know, what, um, what was the reason you guys started Celeste? Yeah, great question. So Celeste actually comes from a particularly personal place for me. Um, when I was in college after, per, after a pretty traumatic incident, um, I leaned on plan B, birth control, Planned Parenthood, um, to really help me find the right um, method of contraception for myself. And that was a way of like feeling confident in myself and my body. Um, I ended up ultimately just having a really short discussion that was not the provider's fault, not my fault. I didn't know what I was supposed to say. Um, there's a lot of constraints in the healthcare system. And so ultimately got prescribed a medication that was not right for me. And so I was dealing with horrible side effects um, while coping with PTSD and ultimately discontinued the medication. And while my story is centered around hormonal contraception, it's it's a very common theme to be given the wrong medication or given a medication and realizing that it's not actually right for your body and your lifestyle and your preferences. And so we started digging into the space. Um, and I, I remember talking to my little sister about it as she was about to go to college. And I was asking her just kind of like, have you taken precautions going to college? Like, do you have all of the tools you need to like really just live a happy and healthy life as someone that's, you know, transitioning from home to like living alone? Um, and she told me kind of like, oh, it's like, it's not important for me. It'll be fine. And it made me realize like she, like many other people um, in Gen Z tend to DIY their healthcare. And so we wanted to create a healthcare system that all women just can feel confident in. And I don't think it's like siloed to women. I think it's all people should be able to feel confident in. Um, but what we're doing is starting with women's health to really address that gender data gap. But yeah, the company is named after my little sister. Um, pro tip. Don't do that. She's gotten the biggest ego trip out of it. Um, it's so funny. She took over our TikTok for 30 seconds and she made a TikTok and posted it where it was like a sound that was like, um, oh, why are you obsessed with me? And she posted it saying, when your sister names her company after you with that sound. And my investors will never let me forget that because it was <laughs> so funny. <laughs> hey, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's good. That's good reach, right? But um, no, I mean, I, I, I thank you for sharing that. And I think that, um, I think it's important. I think women's health is something it's, it's, it's kind of ironic 50, it's like 51 or 52% of the world is women, but we don't know that much. I mean, I think the first time, I mean, as a man, as, as a male who's grown up with pretty much all women, my whole entire life, never knew what, you know, never knew what it took to like go through a period, a menstrual cycle, whatever, until I got married. Like that's when I like really saw the pain, the anguish, whatever, you know, uh, for better, or for worse. And it's just, it's eye opening for you as, as, at least from the the male side is what actually is going on and what are like the things that go through. And like, it really gives you, I mean, at least for me, and this is not to like butter anyone up or whatever, but it like really gives you appreciation for what uh, people go through and what they're, 
you know, and, and there's always a joke, right? Like when, when guys get a headache, we feel like, you know, oh my God, the whole world ends. Whenever, <laughs> right. I joke with my, I joke with my wife. I'm saying, I say like, you know, I'm not used to getting headaches. So, you know, like when I get a headache, it's like the end of the world for me. <laughs> oh, we've all been there. It's totally fair. Those headaches are hard. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> But but I mean I think that um, I I love the I love the movement of women's health companies coming out because I think it is important. Um, you know I don't think people realize that until very recently women got started getting involved into like clinical trials. Right before that, women and children still children still obviously there's reasons for that. But women were not uh, part of clinical trials. Right, so there, we don't have a lot of data. You know we don't have data that can be extrapolated to women. Right, we're just kind of guessing. If really honestly. No, 100%. And I think like the idea of trial and error, I mean, again, you're a pharmacist, I feel like you've seen this more than anybody else, but um, the idea of trial and error is embedded into our clinical workflow, right? Like there, there's very few medications where we know for sure this is exactly right for you. And that doesn't even apply to just pills. That applies to topicals, um, infusions, like a variety of different things. And so what we started to really look into was what like where are the root causes of this idea of ineffective medications or medication non-adherence? And we realized that's a $500 billion problem in the US, which is insane. Um, and we dug into the space and realized it's like exacerbated by three main things um, that, that stuck out to us, which is, which is what we call the triad of treatment hurdles. So we have delay to effective treatment, medication non-adherence, and then going back to your point, high rates of drug development failure. So we dug into the space and we were like, we found out that 90% of clinical drug development does not reach approval. And 50% of these failures are attributed to a lack of clinical efficacy, despite the fact that these medications take what, like one to $2 billion um, and 10 to 15 years to even get to that point. And so I think there's like huge potential for what we're doing and what we're building to really like reimagine that process and ensure that the, that the kind of medications that are produced are considered with everyone's bodies in mind. So a large portion of our product is really thinking about like, how can we improve, pre how can we use pre-prescription testing in our algorithm? And our algorithm is, algorithm is like the basis of our product um, to really improve like medication safety and efficacy scores. So when we realize that there's like a clinical trial market for it, we can actually ensure that drugs are safe to begin with. We were like, this, this could actually work. Like <laughs> we, have, we, have, we have some confidence in it for sure. No, I mean, uh, coming at somebody who's been in that situation, having to deal with people, allergic reactions or really bad adverse events, honestly, you don't really know until you actually try it. And I, I know that might sound scary to people, but that's yeah. really the, the, what we deal with, right? We're trying medications, hoping we're going down an algorithm, you know, this was approved and, you know, but there are issues where, you know, somebody that metabolizes it, they don't get the full effect or they get too much of the effect or, you know, it turns into a you know, they metabolize it into a toxic uh, element, you know, because of their genetic makeup, and now they have a really bad side effect. So, I mean, it's, it's complicated. And we, if we know it's complicated, and that's why, you know, when we start, and if you ever talk to a pharmacist, anytime, you'll always hear them like, oh, if you have an allergic reaction, go to the ER right away. And that's with every medication, right? We always tell it, regardless of what medication you start. And this is the reason why, because we cannot 100% be sure, even if it's a Tylenol or whatever it is over the counter, we don't know what's been in there, whatever, or we also don't know who you are, what you, what you've had. So we have to put that disclaimer out there to make sure that you know that, Hey, whatever you're taking, just be aware of what, you know, something bad could happen. 
100 percent um i'm i you, you sound like gina right now she'll tell me all these like it's just stories of like when she's like intervened and it's it's absolutely crazy because we've we've been kind of just exploring like provider capacity of different pharmacists and like helping build that up as well because pharmacists have so much knowledge and so much like so many skills that and they're it's an underutilized resource um frankly in like actual care delivery and so we're i know something that like is really like gina's really passionate about and i'm definitely really passionate about is like how can how can we improve like actual provider capacity and utilization as a prescribing provider of pharmacists yeah no and i'm as a pharmacist i'm very biased and i like that vision <laughs> a lot <laughs> no i mean uh so let's talk let's talk about your product you know kind of dive into it like uh what is what is the what, like how does it work you know like you know i'm a provider i'm a patient you know walk me through that uh, journey yeah absolutely so at a high level, the one-liner is um, we are a medication diagnostic tool. So we repurpose existing diagnostic lab panels, like your women's health panel, your thyroid panel, and we extend utilization beyond just like telling you what condition you have, the stage of your condition, so far, so forth, um, to actually serving as a precision medicine basis for therapeutics. So as a provider, what would really happen is that your patient come, we're integrated into EHR systems, so your patient would come in. Um, you'd, in, you'd have the encounter with your patient and what we do with a click of a button, generate personalized prescription. Um, we're able to gather comprehensive patient intake details, uh, past lab reports and trends, um, combine it with our algorithm that essentially uplevels these safety scores that the FDA has provided to run all of like this information through existing clinical guidelines, plus our algorithm for pharmacometabolomics to surface a set of medication recommendations for this personalized prescription. Then the provider can just the same way as you're like submitting any prescription, you just select it um, and then you order it. And what we do is handle door to door delivery to ensure that the patient is actually getting the right medication at the right time, right formulation and dose. Um, and then we kind of like take on more of the medication adherence side of it. So the, essentially the personalized prescription report also includes lifestyle changes, dietary changes, activity changes that the patient has to make once on that new medication regimen, because it really takes a toll on your body. Um, and for a lot of people, they require that medication. Like a lot of people take hormonal contraception for PCOS management. Um, insulin is a core component of diabetes management. And these are long-term medications. And so we design a treatment regimen that's really personalized to you. Um, we also take into account where you live, where you, like what food do you have access to? What food do you like eating? Um, different ethnicities, different races have different diets, you know, different activities that you like. Can't be recommending, hey, run six miles a day to someone that has decided they hate running and they actually prefer Pilates. And so we want to personalize that like lifestyle and experience. Um, so we funnel that into the second part of our software, which is our medication adherence tool or pocket pharmacist that basically serves as a patient engagement tool that's white labeled for the provider um, that also has all of that regimen funneled in to the software. So the patient gets like in their pocket, a pharmacist. Um, that has all their past medical history, has that treatment regimen um, to help them meet their goals for that medication. Very cool. Um, so I want to I want to step back a little bit. So when they when when they're ordering labs, is that lab being handled by you guys as well, or is that how does that work? So we repurpose existing diagnostic lab panels. So a lot of uh, different hospital systems and clinics have their go-to lab facility, um, and we realized that. For a lot of like test kit companies, they're using like very, very specific biomarkers, like genetic markers. What we want to do is gather big lab data that's 
you know, indicative of trend insights, indicative of a condition. So that's why we just like parse apart existing lab reports up to a year old that's already in that um, EHR system. Very nice, very nice. And then, uh, so from, from the med adherence side, so you, you know, you said you, you have pharmacists in your pocket. Uh, what does that mean? Like, uh, how does that, how does that work from the, like, how is it? So as a pharmacist, I'm interested, um, and there's other pharmacists that listen to it, but like, what does that mean? How is the pharmacist involved in this whole process? So right now our pocket pharmacist is a more operational lift. We can see ourselves like automating it. So we essentially ship that medication recommendation, um, or sorry, medication regimen, um, to our like in-house team. And that in-house team continues to collaborate as an extension of um, that clinic, because we want to make sure again, like the questions that, you know, we get from patients, we want to make sure that the provider feels really confident in having us as an extension. And I think that's where it can get a little bit dicey with AI. I think AI has a lot of potential and capacity, but we have to be like cognizant of its like, you know, actual abilities. Um, it should be able to enhance existing clinical infrastructure. Um, but of course it has like, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be replacing an existing person. So that's where we take a combination of both an automated and operational approach to flag adverse events, do proactive symptom management, process refills, um, and things like that. Yeah, very cool. I mean, I'm smiling when you said that. Yeah, I can't do anything. And, it's, and I, I always say, I mean, this this is maybe I should just like point it as something, you know, augment don't replace. <laughs> you know, I think that I think people really undervalue what clinicians bring to the table. Uh, and I think they think that, oh, you know, it's just all black and white. And I'm sure, you know, and many and other people that know it's not black and white, you know, if everything was exactly the way our boards were, you know, no mistakes would be made, guys, None, yeah. nothing at all, because it would be so easy because we could just quickly Google or whatever uh, the answer. I mean, but it, in reality, everyone is different. You know, we kind of highlighted it a little bit, right? You know, both of us could present with the same exact symptoms, same exact uh, disease state, but we might both need different medications. And that just could be because of our genetic makeup. A hundred percent. And I also think, and again, like I'm, I'm sure I don't have to tell you this, but provider burnout is so real and we need tools to support already overburdened providers. You have providers that are burnt out. It like, it hurts the entire healthcare system. And I think that like, what's really exciting about AI and like, not just AI, but just like technology enabled tools and services is the ability to like expedite a lot of these processes that are tedious um, more than anything else. Um, while also serving as like a support system and network to providers. Cause I think like another thing that a lot of digital health companies have started to make a focus and it's definitely a focus of ours as well is like make a product that people like will actually adopt. And for us, like that end user, their health systems, their insurance payers. And so we want to make sure like we're creating a product that physicians actually like. So that's, what's also exciting about our advisory board. We have just the most incredible group of diverse providers, um, physicians, pharmacists, uh, researchers, so on and so forth, um, that are all part and parcel of like building this product because we need to think about like efficiency as more than just allowing for more revenue driving activities, but actually giving providers the time and space to enjoy what they're doing and help their patients in the way that they want to. Yeah, 100%. I think I tell people, I, I mean, I say this, like if you have a happy provider, they're generally gonna have, the, the patient interaction is gonna be better. So like. I mean, some people don't agree with me on this one, but like, you know, if you're making a product that that has like the patient and the provider, like the, they're the main end users, I always say focus on the provider because the patient will end up having the better experience because if you're if you're freeing up the provider and the provider is happy to use your software, they're going to push it to the patient, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many times and every person that's ever worked in a hospital knows exactly where this like 
little closet exists or that one drawer that has iPads labeled with things that, or, you know, that we're supposed to do or do, but it's just a hindrance to us. So it just doesn't get used and eventually just gets phased out. And guess what? Yeah. You might've had some adoption in the beginning, but if no one is using it, you don't have a company anymore. And the people that are pushing it are the providers. 100%. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. So, I mean, um, so how is the how has the reception been? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's been positive, but like you know, when you guys were first approaching providers about this uh, system, like how was there any uh, pushback from them at all? Yeah, great question. I think people can get wary about just you know, again, we're precision. Like these are all a lot of buzzwords, right? You have like AI, precision medicine, all these things, and it's like, what do they really mean? And so it's obviously like we got like more of like the high level pushback when we initially approached it um, of just like, hey, we're giving you this like solution. But at the end of the day, I think what we've learned in that process and why we have really good adoption from providers now, and it's not just providers, but health systems, insurance companies um, that are all really interested in like utilizing this product is because we've done it in a way that it doesn't actually add any additional lift to the provider themselves. We could have made this a direct consumer company built out a test kit, so on and so forth. That's where we actually started. We realized that actually cuts the doctor out of the process. Um, you want to give a medication recommendation to the shared decision-making team, not just the patient themselves. And what we wanted to do is not just be a clinical decision-making support tool. I think that those are useful, but there's also just so many out there. How can we become like basically a cornerstone or a standard of care for treatments? And so that's where we kind of thought about, let's repurpose existing diagnostic panels. There is so much information out there. There, the diagnostic to the diagnosis to, to treatment flow is already disjointed. The material that you use for diagnosis is not generally utilized for determining what treatment is best for you, apart from the condition themselves, the condition itself. Um, so what we wanted to do was actually think about like, let's remove the provider burden. Let's take away all those like, frankly, just frustrating admin overhead activities for prior authorization for formulary checks and like things like that, but also give them a solution that, you know, can be attached to them and their patient from time of medication selection through management. And so when we became that turnkey solution, our adoption like skyrocketed. Um, we got a lot of great, like, just like leads and customers um, and investors, even just from the health conference and just talking about it um, because medication non-adherence has become such a huge problem, um, both in and out of the healthcare industry, I would say. Yeah. Um, I hope everyone was listening to that because, you know, I think what you meant, you know, like, cause what you're saying is, you know, you're not, you're like, you're not saying like, oh, we just developed this algorithm. That's just going to take care of everything. Like you guys, you, you're literally saying like, Hey, we're taking the administrative burden away from you. And, and, and you're going to, and that's what leads to happiness. Right. And people want to be happy in the long run. Like imagine every product that you buy outside of necessity, like, you know, let's say like outside of necessity, even the necessity ones, you're going to pick the one that makes you the happiest. That's going to make you make your job easier or whatever it is. And I think that's, that's lost on some digital health companies is they don't realize the, the administrative burden that exists and how much of that is actually linked to burnout. It's not the amount of patients we're seeing. It's not the amount of this. It's all that. It's like all that stuff we all went to school for. We knew this. We knew we weren't going to have the greatest work-life balance, all that stuff, depending on where you're working. But it's like, we didn't realize that. I mean, I can tell you from experience, prior aughts took up so much of my time and that has nothing to do with patient care. I mean, okay, it has something to do with patient care, but in terms of like, and this is not meant to be a flex or anything, but you have some of your highest earning people in the hospital or your clinic or whatever, chasing down 
prior odds. Is that a good use of our, is that a good use of their time, your time, whatever? No, they should be doing what you're paying them to do is to take care of patients. A hundred percent. And I think that's kind of like also where we step in. So imagine like you're, you're, you're a clinician and you're kind of like, instead of chasing people down, you're actually able to gather all the information that you need to be able to go through the prior authorization process faster. You don't have to go back and do the lab that you need to do for HRT prescriptions, or you don't have to go back and like, you have all that information to submit to insurance companies at the point of prescription. And so the time to effective treatment is significantly reduced because we're not only like clinically justifying a prescription, we're also, we're not like, we're not doing the actual prioritization process, but we're providing you all the information to, to take that on. And I think as we grow, we intend to kind of like help and support in that prior authorization process as well. Yeah. No, and like I said, just, if you want to get, if you want to get clinicians excited to use your product, just go after administrative tasks first. They're also, they're also simple in the sense of automation, right? I mean, they're just, they're just, just, they're just annoying to do. And I know there's no really good way of saying that, uh, but that's, that's awesome. So you also mentioned that you work with uh, insurance companies. What is that? What does that uh, partnership look like? Yeah, great question. So right now, especially with the kind of like medication groups that we're targeting at the get-go, um, we become like lucrative to risk-based plans. So we're starting with hormonal contraception, HRT, just looking at the really like the medications that are really important um, in reproductive health within the women's health sector. And then we want to span horizontally across medication groups. So right now we're already lucrative as as kind of like a way to ensure that People are able to stay in their jobs, like ensure that they're able to kind of like live a happy and healthy life in the context of being able to manage symptoms of different conditions. So, for example, hormonal contraception is not just for pregnancy prevention. Pregnancy prevention is is a, a huge like value for the people that are interested in that service. Um, but it's also used for hormonal acne management. It's used for um, treat like managing symptoms of PCOS and endometriosis. And so we want to really take that multi multifaceted approach. And so insurance companies are really interested, especially not just now, but like even as we span across medication groups, how can we ensure that people get the right medication at the right time, at the right dose and formulation so that they, their prognosis or like their condition doesn't worsen, causing them to actually undertake more expensive treatments. And I think that's like um, a huge incentive for, for insurance companies to begin with. Yeah, no, for sure. Because in the end, like you mentioned, medication adherence, I mean, it's a very low hanging fruit, but it's a massive low hanging fruit. There's a lot of yeah. issues that, you know, there's it's, people ask me like, hey, how do you fix medication adherence? I'm like, how much time do you have? You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really multifaceted thing. And, you know, uh, you guys are attacking it from a very important angle, right? You know, just, just the, you know, just being able to give them the right. I and mean, also there's trust involved with that too, right? Like if a patient knows that, hey, I'm going to get the right medication. It's based on me, personalized medication, personalized medicine is a big, big push going on right now. And I'm, I'm all for it because I think that it's been too long where we've taken the autonomy away from our patients. Uh, and I'm saying we, as in the collective, we, as in clinicians, because I think we, you know, when you go to school and stuff, you're never really taught like, Hey, you know, this is, you're just told like, Hey, this is the algorithm. You just go with this, this, and this, right. We're not told like to work with our patients and, you know, make sure everything's okay. And not saying that, I mean, we are, but not, it's not the main thing that we're taught. Right. And I think from there, like we've set up the system where patients come to us to look for help. They're not like, they don't feel like they own their, um, they own their body really at this point. Like it's like almost, they're like renting it. Right. You know, imagine if you're renting a house versus owning a house, if something breaks in your house and you rent it, you're just going to call your landlord and be like, Hey, can you fix this washer dryer? 
if it's your house, the washer dryer is broken, you have to fix it. So you are going to take more care of it. You're going to make sure that you're going to hopefully do proper maintenance, whatever, right? <laughs> or maybe you have a lot of money and you're, you're just going to buy a new one, whatever, whatever, it ha whatever end of the spectrum you are, it's still yours, right? There's this different attachment to it. And that's what I really like about personalized medication, medicine, like kind of what you guys are doing is I think it's giving back that control back to the patients that I think has been lacking for God since medicine's been around. <laughs> no, I definitely, I definitely agree. I think like we have like, and I think a lot of digital health companies, not just us, are really like moving the needle on personalized medicine. Um, there's like a number of them that have like continued to inspire me um, and our business model of like, hey, like you're actually making an impact in patients' lives. And I think at the end of the day, our tool goes back to patients. We want to make sure patients are, you know, happier and healthier and are, we ha we're building a healthcare system that those patients can trust. And so um, personalized med medicine, I think, can come in so many different formats. And it's exciting to see different digital health companies finding their own, I guess, like wedge and finding their own kind of like rhythm to being able to like implement that in into your everyday life. And I think we're all working together um, to create this like new healthcare system with like healthcare providers and insurance companies and so on and so forth. Yeah, I'm all for it because I think the more collaborative we are, the more I think, I mean, this is this is my hypothesis. <laughs> we're going to the scientific method here, guys. Uh, no, I, I do think okay. that if we have a more collaborative effort to take care of people, um, we're going to see better outcomes. I mean, I've seen it in my own practice when you, when you sit down with patients, you know, like, like a, a really common example is, you know, taking medications three times a day or four times a day. Right. You know, a lot of patients are like, Oh, you know, you take it every six hours and they're like, okay, well, I can't get up at three in the morning or whatever. And honestly, this sounds really stupid to the people that are going to hear it. When I was in school, that was never a thought pro that never crossed my mind. I'm like, Oh, you just take it four times a day. That's the answer to the test. But when you go and talk to somebody, you're like, okay, you're actually like working out like, holy crap, who's going to get up this early in the morning to take this medication? And that leads to non-adherence. And then that can lead to complications, right? So like you have to work with your patients. And then when you, when you, when the patient sees like, Hey, you're working with them, they're more likely to a trust you and b follow your directions because now they're seeing like, Hey, this person is working around my life. They're not just telling, they're not just talking at me. They're working with me. And I've seen that in my own practice and my own experience where when you're working with patients they're more likely to i don't want follow your directions is not the best way but they, they're more likely to be adherent 100 percent. and i like even just like for myself with like birth control i didn't know why we had to like take birth control pills at the same time every day mm -hmm. i remember asking so many of my friends i was like i know we all have the same alarm at like 8 p.m sharp but like does anyone know why we're why we're doing that apart from being told that we have to? And I think there is that level of like just answering questions like, why do I have to be doing this? Or like, should I be feeling this way on this medication when you start feeling a little fatigued or you start feeling like nauseous? I think that really helps just like alleviate a lot of the stress that patients go through on their medication like regimen that to your point leads to medication non-adherence. Um, I actually have a question for you. Yeah. Who, who do you think owns the metric of medication non-adherence? And I ask because not just a lot of my investors and I have been like talking about it, but also just like it came up um, quite a bit when we were talking with like different providers and it was a real, we found, we had a really interesting realization. So I'm curious what, what your perspective is. Um, my perspective is the treatment team. So everyone involved in the treatment team and um, I, this might be a cop-out answer, but I really truly mean this. I mean, so like I, when I worked in, I worked in oncology, so it was me, you know, like the pharmacist, the, the physician, the nursing staff, whatever. I think all of us are involved in that medication adherence thing. And the reason why is because 
medication adherence is such a big thing, right? There's the pharma, the, the pharmacology part of it. Then there's the actual like physical part of it where, you know, the doctors are taken care of. And then, you know, just the generic general things that nurses, nurses can take care of. Like, you know, so I, I say medication adherence is a collective like effort that if you, if you're only putting it on the pharmacist or if you're only putting it on the doctor, you're going to fail because they can't, they can't do everything right. You need a, like a multi-pronged approach, uh, to solve it. And, um, you know, like for me, like, for example, like when I, where I worked, you know, like our, our, we had a program where if anyone started a brand new, um, oral medication, oral chemotherapy medication, they would be automatically put into a program where the pharmacist would call them weekly for a month, the first month, and then monthly after that, and then it would go to three months and so on and so forth. Right. Obviously we would call them sooner. And, um, at first, like, you know, patients, I think really appreciated that, but it wasn't just us, right. You know, when, if they said something, we would have to, if it was something outside of the medication world, like I would have to reach out to the, my, my oncologist and be like, Hey, they're doing this. Like, this is above my, this is above my head, right? Like you have to come in and help me in this. So that's why, that's why I mean, like, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a whole team that has to deal with it. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I definitely agree. I think it is like, it is, it is a team effort. Um, it's interesting. Cause when we were doing a lot of like, just like stakeholder interviews and a lot of those that we do with patients as well, um, patients, we've, Based on our research, patients, it's, sorry, based on our research, we've seen that patients tend to feel like they own the medication adherence metric, and they're the only ones that are responsible for taking their medications at the right time, at the, like, in the right way, like, and they feel it's, it's overwhelming, especially with, like, the kind of medication that you're taking, if it's baronolactone, for one, to, like, a different heart medication or like different heart medications or diabetes medications or to your point like oncology medications and so it's interesting that you say it's like a treatment thing and i'm curious kind of like what we can all do as a healthcare system um to help patients feel more supported in their medication management journey in that way i'll be honest that actually makes i'm very surprised though by that um and i'm also really sad to hear that because i think that that shows a fundamental breakdown in our medical system that a patient thinks that they own their medical adherence. And honestly, it really does make me sad because I'm just thinking of all the patients that we had um, and all the complicated regimens and all the complicated ways of taking it, you know, with food, without food, you know, you're taking two medications, you know, multiple, various different ways. And it really makes me sad. And I, 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 it sucks that that is the answer. And I don't really know how to formulate that because I would talk to my patients and I would, the one thing I would always tell them is, you know, if you're feeling anything out of the ordinary, please call me. Um, you know, my job is that you're not, you're never bothering me. And, um, some of them would kind of look at me like, really? Like, you know, cause you know, I think patients get, just feel like they're just being pushed down a conveyor belt. And uh, so I can see why they feel that way, but it really does make me sad to hear that. Yeah. It's really interesting. And it's like, it's, it's no, it's no, I don't think it's like anyone's fault. It just sounds like, um, it's one of those things where there is a huge opportunity to really think about like how we can work as a healthcare system. Cause I don't think like it's one provider, it's like one insurance company, it's one, whoever, like that's responsible for it. To your point, like the entire treatment team that involves the patient that involves like different members of the healthcare system. And so I'm excited to see like, and I've definitely like de noticed it, um, at least when I was at health, like a lot of people were talking about it just like, different patient education material and way, like really creative ways of like keeping your patient engaged and feeling like healthcare isn't this like siloed community that uses very specific jargon. It's like something that's actually attainable to the patient, something that they can actually engage in. 
Um, so there, I swear there's light at the end of the tunnel. It's no, it's no one's fault. It's like, it's not like that. I think it's more of like, oh, now we know, like now let's work together to like come up with like a really cool solution that we can all really adopt fast. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I will push back a little bit. It is, it is our fault. I mean, I will, I will say that, you know, I mean, I'm being serious. Like, I think that, um, uh, I'm not saying that, you know, we need to take on all of it, but I mean, I think if your patient is feeling that kind of burden, uh, especially knowing the types of medications and types of therapies that some of these patients are on, that means that we failed them. And and I'm I'm using the word failed like per, uh, for a reason because that sucks to be in that position. I mean, I think you know, like we, you know, you're not only does the patient feel powerless because they're they're fa- facing this disease, now they feel even more powerless because now the medications they need to live are giving them this burden to where, to the point where, you know, they're just crippled. Um, and that's just, I mean, I don't know. I, I can't get past that. It's really hard for me to kind of wrap my head around that, honestly. No, and I think that's totally fair. I, I think like coming even from like, cause I could come from more of a patient side to your provider side. And I think like, it's so heartwarming to hear that. Um, it's something that I think a lot of patients didn't, don't know that they like, I think there's also just like a miscommunication, right? Like I think everyone's going, has such a busy life. You're going in five different directions. And I think that like, again, it go, to me, it comes back to like, how can we communicate better um, with patients? How can patients communicate better with providers? How can we build that trust? And I think like to actually like have trust between a patient and provider is how you facilitate communication. And so I'm excited again, like going back to like, not just what like digital health companies are doing, but like policy changes where it makes like different access to care methods more accessible, like actual clinical research that's being done on better treatment plans or more effective treatment plans for specific parts of the population. I think that that always really helps with taking personalized medicine from more of just like a, at time of prescription or at time of condition diagnosis to like addressing it at the root cause as root cause of where this treatment is actually coming from. Yeah, and I agree. And I think, and I kind of go kind of circling back to your earlier point of um, reducing some um, burden, like, you know, you know, but burden on the clinician. I think if there's, if you're opening up more time for people, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people will say like, physicians will say, like, have told me like, it's not that we want to see more patients. We just want to be able to see our, the patients that we're seeing better. And that, that kind of falls into that, right? I think that if we had the time to see the patients that we're currently seeing and see them better, maybe the patients wouldn't feel that burden. Maybe they, would have, they wouldn't answer that way, right? Maybe they'd say like, oh, no, it's not just me. You know, my pharmacist or my doctor or my nurse or whoever it is is also helping me out, right? You know, I think this is all, this is, this is why like, you know, burnout is, I don't even like to use the word burnout because I think it trivializes it. I think people, it, it, it makes people think of one thing over the other. And it, people don't really look at the root cause, kind of like what you were mentioning, but uh, it, it, there's a downstream effect to all of this. And, this, and what, you just, this, what you just said is one of them. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And I think burnout, in whatever shape and form, burnout is burnout. And like, burnout sucks, let's mm-hmm. be honest. Like, it's not fun no matter what career path you're in. I think providers face it so, so acutely. Um, it broke my heart to see all of the different, especially like during covid all of the different articles that came out. I had friends personally working in clinic and in unit um, doing the absolute most work and really just like sticking around for all of us. And so I'm 
I think like, it's so interesting when you kind of think about like mental health in the workplace and like one being in like a clinical workplace too, even just like being a founder and what that means in terms of burnout or being a student and burnout and how we can just help, help people feel supported and just be honest about where they're at. And I know that's something like my team and I just really like talk about the idea of being honest and being like open about your mental health and like where you are today is really important for the people you work with to know, to be able to support you. Yeah, 100%. I think, and I don't want to hijack this conversation on burnout, but since we're talking about it, I think a lot of it, it has to be a lot of the, I think the, a lot of the burnout kind of got out of control. I mean, COVID is not the reason for burnout. It just exacerbated. It just yeah. kind of opened the 100%. doors wide open because we weren't able to keep the doors closed. Cause I think one thing that people don't realize, I, I think people are starting to realize this, but we as medical professionals, we're taught to be stoic in front of our patients. We're taught to like, Hey, the world, literally there could be a fire behind you, but you, you have to just, you have, you have to make the patient feel like there's no fire behind you. Right. And that's how we're trained. All of, most of us are all trained that way. Right. Um, and during COVID it just got way out of hand to the point where we couldn't hold the door closed anymore. And it, you know, it just opened the, it just opened everyone's eyes, uh, for better, for worse. Uh, hopefully it is for the better. I think that people are starting to realize it and take it seriously. Unfortunately, people are leaving. Great people are leaving. You know, I've, I've seen, amazing people leave the leave the profession and it it really does make me sad but hopefully you know i don't want to let's let's turn it into a positive but you know people like you know companies like you and others are really trying to help and i really appreciate that a lot no i love that and again not trying to hijack the conversation with burnout but i i do agree like it did exacerbate like COVID did exacerbate a lot of problem um so here's here's the better and newer 100 percent. so we kind of talked about the you know the the physician side, you know, I do want to touch on the the patient side. How has the reception been from the from the patient side? Patients have actually been so so excited um, to know that there that there is some sort of solution where they can actually feel confident in the medication that they're given. And I think that like knowing that like it's not a burden for them, as in like they don't have to take on the task of going and buying a test kit for it or buying this or buying that or like going and finding resources on their own. It's like going to be embedded in their doctor's office as like a part of their care is like a huge lift off of their shoulders. They can go into a doctor's visit not having to do four hours of TikTok research or Reddit research like before getting there. And like that's how misinformation continues to like spread too, right? You think about like you're like just if you crowdsource information, it's fantastic, but there's a lot of misinformation that comes to that because one person's experience is not going to be the same as the next. And I think with what we saw with birth control prescriptions, a lot of patients would come in to clinic X and they would say, oh, my friend is on this birth control, so I want it too. And like, wouldn't really give the doctor a chance either to say, wait, that may not actually be right for you because they've made a decision prior to even entering the encounter. And so I think like, We've gotten a lot of good response. Um, we had, uh, when we were direct consumer as well, we had like awesome wait lists and we're happy to, we're excited to like continue to support those patients, um, but more in a capacity where they're going to their existing provider and utilizing Celeste through that pathway. Yeah, no, and I agree with you. I think misinformation, um, I mean, I think there's a lot, I, I love the access to information, but I think that there's also, you know, bad agents out there that are trying to spread bad things right i mean i i always joke with my wife and you know she's you know she's she's on tiktok whatever reddit whatever and she'll like always like say hey zan have you heard of this or hey zan like did you know that this and i'm like what 
or like you know or you know i'd be like oh let me let me take a look at it right uh, especially when i worked at the hospital it was like i would just pull up a couple of research papers that'd be like no this is complete trash or no actually that does that's actually true but i mean not everyone has that you know medical i mean not everyone has somebody in the medical field that um that they can turn to right and i'm not saying that i'm like the smartest person in the world i just know where to find stuff <laughs> hey win is a win i'll take it um it's, but you're right it's it's hard to figure out also which resources to rely on as a patient um i think like i remember even like just looking for random just like acne treatments and i would like go on tiktok and then i go to facebook groups yes facebook groups still exist mm-hmm. yeah, um and go to like twitter and like 500 different places just so that I felt like I I had some kind of leg to stand on when I went to the doctor's visit. And that's not to say I didn't trust my doctor. Absolutely did. I just wanted to make sure I understood everything as well and understood my choices. And I think what's been great with like physicians we've been working with, they're such advocates for second opinions as most clinicians are. And I think like what we're doing is like also almost embedding a second opinion into like the existing care delivery workflow in a way that patients and providers can feel confident in it. Uh, no, you had mentioned that your sister had taken over, like, you know, she made a, made a, a real, tic- I don't know exactly what to call it, a TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you guys, do you guys use TikTok as a, a marketing tool or a education tool or like just social media in general? I think we use social media as an education tool. I think the best use of social media is also just when you're not selling anything. And because we're not selling anything to patients, we can just be there education partner and friend um, helping bridge the gap between like patients and the clinical industry. And so that's where we kind of like lean on um, that level of just like TikTok or social media or Twitter, what so on and so forth. Because I also think that all these like sources of social media are a great resource for founders and for companies as for user research to begin with. You get unfiltered comments that you know, people describing their real experiences, people posting videos about their real experiences. Granted, they're like, you know, from a science point of view, there's a lot of confounding variables. But when you look at it, a patient experience is a patient experience. And I think like we've really like embedded that process of like making, trying to design something that patients also really like in terms of like what that patient engagement process is. And a lot of the user research we did outside of those interviews and surveys and, you know, all of that lift was just listening to people and people talk on TikTok. So we were there to listen. That's awesome. I think that more companies need to do that. I think that obviously there it, it's a lot of work. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that it's, it's a lot of work to do social media, create content, whatever. I think that creating content for just the sake of creating content and for the betterment of your clients or patients, physicians, whatever it is, it's, it develops great trust and it, and it really, um, helps get your game out there in a, in a non like markety way, right? Like you're, you're not selling them anything. They're just, they're just associating with you with really good information. And then they'll be like, Oh, okay. They also are, they also do this other stuff. And then you can get inbound that way. I mean, there's been a lot of companies, not, I shouldn't say a lot of companies, but there's been a good amount of companies built just on the back of being the top couple Google search for almost everything in their specific field. Yeah, 100%. Um, I've definitely seen like, there's so many different go-to-market strategies. I know like we've gone through a couple, I think every startup does. Um, It's actually, it's crazy to think about what it means to like market in healthcare in a credible and reliable way. And I think for us, like we've always really leaned on being like, you know, that resource that providers can rely on. And, you know, like insurance companies can rely on for like accurate recommendations, accurate data, 
Um, but we did realize like, I just think like the patient engagement side of it and being able to like service that patient engagement tool is just such a like seamless funnel of like purely just for user research, but even just the idea that like now their patient, now the patient is going to go and ask the provider, Hey, like I saw this thing, do you use it in your clinic or, Hey, I saw this thing. And like, I know it, it, it can help me find a better option, a better medication option, better birth control that might be good for me. Like, could I use it with you, like with your support? And so we wanted to create that kind of like discourse and conversation, like between the patient and provider as well. Um, it's also just like, it's fun. Our team like has like a good time. We'll like, we don't spend a lot of time on it because we're, we are a B2B company, but I think the moments that we get to just like be able to connect with patients in that way, it's always like a fun time. Yeah. And also it helps you, uh, it helps you kind of keep going when times are kind of tough, right? Cause it, it helps you identify why you're doing what you're doing. A hundred percent. And I think like motivation is, is huge. Um, my, one of my teammates and I, we recently just like sat down with a, a group of patients and we just wanted to like sit and listen to their story. And every time we bring up, even just like, if we bring up hormone replacement therapy or like menopause, just the, the conversations that ensue and people are just so willing and open to share their stories because they want to be a part of the mission. And that's what we also realized, like the moment we start telling doctors and like other providers that they're by joining Celeste, you're joining this mission to address the gender data gap. You're joining this mission to elevate quality of care and therapeutics. So many people are willing to be a part of that. Um, it's almost like pseudo marketing that we never even thought we were doing, but, but just saying like, Hey, like let's all band together and do it together. And they're all interested in that. Yeah. I think that's one thing that people want to get into it. Like patients are willing to share their stories as uncomfortable or as embarrassing as it may be, as long as they know that they're going to get some value out of it. I'm not saying it's like a transactional thing, but you know, they know that, Hey, we have to share, we have to share things to get the right thing. Right. And uh, if they don't trust you, you're not going to get that information. And, um, and that kind of goes back to, you know, building that trust, you know, giving in, giving information away from pre and also showing them that you actually care about them and you're not just using them. I think that's another thing that, um, some companies fail and like, it's just a one way, one way thing. Right. A hundred percent. I think also just like human to human people like to like, like, I think people like to feel heard and mm -hmm. feel listened to. And so if we can provide even that resource to them of like, Hey, like they've been going through this experience on like with their condition or with their medication and they feel like heard. Um, I think that's already just such a huge value add. Um, that we've at least heard feedback from patients for just like, thank you for listening to my story. Thank you for actually being there to listen. Yeah, I have, I have, a, I have a story that just like sticks in my head. There's like, you know, there's a couple moments in your life where it just never leaves you. I remember one time being um, on my rotations, my fourth year rotations, and I was at a, at a retail pharmacy and this patient came in, you could tell like, you know, you know, when like somebody's walking towards you, you're like, oh crap, like this is not going to be good. You could, it was one of those things. A patient comes in, like throws their prescription down and just starts yelling at our technician. And then the pharmacist walks in just yelling, just going at her and doesn't say anything. She just kind of is taking it in, whatever. And, um, you know, she's just talking to him calmly. And eventually he like, he calms down and he's like, I'm really sorry. Uh, you know, it's just been kind of a tough day. She's like, don't worry. No, you know, she's just you know trying to make the situation right. And then he walks away and then we're filling the prescription and she, and she turns to me and she's like, Zan, did you see what happened? And I'm like, Oh, that was crazy. Like, you know, I'm like the fourth year student. I'm like petrified. I'm sitting in the corner oh. hoping that no one sees me. And she's like, you know, uh, 
interactions like that will happen to you in your career, just know that they're not getting angry at you. They're just angry at the system because the only reason he is angry at me, he knows that I have nothing to do with insurance. He knows that I didn't cause his, you know, whatever, his family's pain or whatever. It's just that he's just been passed around throughout the whole system and he just wants to be heard. And we are the only people that can't leave, right? I, I can't walk out of the pharmacy. I don't have another thing. Like I have to sit there and say, it's like, when you, when you face a situation like that, just, just be quiet, listen to them and trust me, it'll work out in the end. And I can do not, that's something that that's advice I've taken throughout my whole career. And it's, I would say 99% of the times, that's literally all what it is. It's just, they just yeah. want to be heard. 100%. And I think it even like, oh, I can't even imagine that must've been just so <laughs> difficult for like every party involved in that conversation. But it just kind of like, I, I was talking to a friend about this and like, she always just does such a good job of like, I'll call her up and I'll have had like just a really rough day, um, just work and like other things. And like, she just, she always asks me, what do you need from me right now? Do you need a sounding board or do you need advice? And I have like forever taken that through my entire life, like whether it's work, whether it's personal, anything, because I think you need to be there for people the way they want you to be there for them. Um, and I think that applies clinically all the time. Like, again, it goes back to building a product that people actually want. People can't build something that maybe like you've created and you've imagined in your head in like five different ways, like just to quote unquote, like disrupt the system. It's like, is this actually solving a problem? Is this actually addressing a need? And like, I don't know, that's like something that like I hold, re hold really dearly of like, okay, does, do providers want this experience like to be an efficiency tool? Do they want this? Like, again, like just being there for a person the way they need them way they want you to be there 100 uh i have a couple more questions uh if that's okay i know we're coming up time i also want to be respectful of that but um so if somebody's interested in celeste they want to you know get onboarded how what is that how a how do they do that and what does the process look like great question um, they can go to our website and request a demo they're also welcome to reach out to me on linkedin um we also have a partnerships email if you're a health system or an insurance company it's just partnerships at heycelest.co um and that's about it one member of our team will reach out to you in 24 hours awesome and then one last question for you uh what is some advice would you have given yourself before you kind of started this journey um like as being a founder i mean you've you've done a lot of things but uh you know after you got out of college like what advice would you have given yourself back then knowing what you know now Great question. So I was lucky in the sense that I had sold my first company at the close of 2021. It was a public health SaaS platform that primarily worked in nonprofit settings, really templating public health interventions and clinical interventions. Um, and one of the things I learned then was it's a marathon, not a race. Like the, this imaginary clock that we all have of like, oh, I need to get this done in like a ridiculous like record setting amount of time doesn't actually build a good product. And so that was something that I always like continue to remind myself of. And something that my mentor actually told me relatively recently is just like, stay true to your mission because you like, that's the thing that continues to power you. Um, and I think like when you're thinking about like your mission, you think about the company, not an individual product. And so being just very amenable to being able to like pivot and change your solution to better fit the problem will help you build an actual business rather than just one siloed product. Um, and so those were two big things. And then the third thing is 
sleep, sleep as much as you can. I can't say that enough. <laughs> Go to sleep. It's great. It'll make you feel so much better. Don't like try and like overwork yourself. It's just going to like negatively affect your work. I think balance is always really important. Yeah, no, I think that's all great advice. And the sleep thing, um, the older I'm getting, the less, the more sleep I need. And I'm, really, <laughs> I'm really trying. And I have a friend that says, you need to get eight hours. And I always tell him I'm trying. I'm at like six and a half, seven hours. I'm really trying to push it to eight. But uh, no, uh, thank you so much for your time. I And uh, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way of doing that? Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm Athena Doshi. Um, I hope there's not too many of us. I don't think there are. Um, but founder and CEO of Celeste. So you'll see me over there. Awesome. Thank you again. This was awesome. Thanks so much for having me.